We come this morning to Romans chapter 8. For those of you who are small group leaders who study the passage in advance and didn't know we were going to be here this week, I extend my apologies, but it wasn't my fault. Um, No, honestly, uh, this was supposed to be a snow day. Um, Actually, I feel pretty good about that because when we put together the schedule for preaching that that we did back in November, we did it all the way through Memorial Day. I always build in one Sunday for snow and then one Sunday for missions. And Thursday, I felt pretty good that this was the Sunday that I put in for snow. Uh, even though I knew we were going to have church, actually Ben Robertson was scheduled to preach today, but then he, he got sick and was unable to come. And hence, uh, we're in Romans about uh, two weeks earlier than you probably were told that we were going to be there. So uh, it is my fault. It's not my fault. I'm sorry. Uh, but here we are uh, in this passage that many people consider to be the greatest passage in uh, uh, chapter in all of the scriptures. Uh, listen to what one Bible commentary, a man named Douglas Moo, who has a tremendous you know, great doorstop uh, volume. In other words, it's a great commentary, but it's also large enough to hold any door that you have open. But he, he says this, the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of the Christian faith, the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the highest peak in a range of mountains. These are some of the metaphors used by interpreters who extol Romans chapter 8 as the greatest passage within what many consider to be the greatest book of Scripture. Another commentator who put it a little bit more succinctly says this, this chapter is precious because it begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation, and there is no defeat in between. So we come today to Romans chapter 8. Our study beginning in verse 1, we'll be looking through verse 11 this morning. Uh, It is one of those weeks that I I do wish, as we come here, that I could be like Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones, who I've mentioned several times, who took nine years to go through, uh, but then it also dawns on me I don't have his gift, and we as 21st century Americans probably don't have 1960s British patients. So it's probably good that we won't be doing that. Those of you who want it, I have his books on my shelf. You're welcome to borrow them. But we come now to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells within you. The word and the promise of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we, we come with thanksgiving. This day that you have established for us, that we might revolve our, our lives around a day to rest from our labors and even from our pretense of righteousness. Learn once again to rest in your grace, which not only has forgiven us of our sin, but that enables us to go, to experience joy, to prosper, and to bless others. Lord, we pray that this word that we have just read, which is revered by many, might be a balm to our ails, a seed within our souls that blossoms and bears fruits within us that can be shared with others. Lord, be at work now in us that we might not only understand with our minds, but truly experience the freedom that Christ has come to give to us in our minds, in our lives, in our relationships, in all ways. That we may worship you not only in song and in praise, but with our minds and with our lives. Lord, be at work that you may be pleased as your image grows within us. We pray in the name of Christ our King. Amen. A young man walks into a hardware store. He's a city boy who decided to slow things down and so he wanted to move out to the countryside. He'd been there for a short time, but now as winter was going to approach, he decided that he would cut all of the wood that he would need for his home for that winter. So going to the hardware store, he walked in and told the salesman that he wanted the, the best chainsaw that they had available. The salesman showed him a few different models, but then came to one that was large, but this was a, a young man, a, a strong man, burly guy, and he said, this one should do. The young man says, I want to be able to cut two cords a day. And he said, you'll easily be able to do two cords a day with, with this. So the man purchased it, took it home. In the morning, excited, got up, began to work, cutting the trees down. Huffing and puffing and sweating, he worked throughout the day. At the end of the day, quite frustrated because he only had cut about a half a cord. It was new to him, so he thought perhaps it would get easier as he's done this for, does this for a few days and the job becomes more familiar to him. But each day he went out early in the day until the sun was about to set. And each day he cut barely one half cord of wood per day. And so the following week he goes back and takes his now somewhat battered chainsaw, though it's only a week old, back to the salesman and said, look, there's something wrong with this thing. You had said that I'd be able to cut two cords of wood per day. And I've been out from daylight to dark and working hard 
and I'm only able to get a half a cord a day. And so the salesman said, well, let's take a look at it. So he takes the saw from the guy, and he looks at it, and he pulls the cord, and then the engine begins to hum, and then the young man says, what's that sound? Come on, you got that. The city boy didn't know that he actually were to pull the cord and that there was a power in the chainsaw. He thought the chain itself would simply be able to saw and cut the wood. Well, this stupid joke is actually one that clearly is not appreciated. Um, is, uh, <laughs> is a metaphor for the Christian life, at least for the way many of us try to live out the Christian life. We saw last week in Romans chapter 7 an example of how the Christian life does not work. The Apostle Paul confessed that even in his own life, there's things that he wants to do, but he doesn't do them. And then the things that he no longer wants to do, he continues to do those things. And he finishes with the frustration with his own spiritual life, saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, this guy who continues on sinning. And for those that were thinking that Paul was using hyperbole, I mentioned that Paul, towards the end of his life, as he's writing to his protege, Timothy, he says, here is a saying that is trustworthy, worthy of all consideration. In other words, it's something that Paul had adopted and reminded himself of regularly, that he was now passing on to Timothy so that Timothy could pass it on to the church that he pastored so that the people in that church and then all of us would adopt this saying as well. And he's saying that it was trustworthy, worthy of all consideration is this, is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And so Paul really did experience that frustration of failure within his Christian life, which brings comfort to most of us because we also experience failure. Some of us in shame and quiet because we didn't know that that was normal, that others within the church also struggle and fail, did what they don't want to do, and don't do the things that they want to do. But many people object to Romans chapter 7 and saying, that can't be all there is. I mean, some people will look at that and say, well, you know, if the Apostle Paul can't succeed, if the Apostle Paul is just a failure, then what hope is there for me? Those who think that that can't be the end of the story are correct. It's important that we recognize that it is a part of our story. It is a part of the story. Every one of us is going to experience failures, either doing the things that we wish that we would not, or not doing all the things that we want to do. But Romans chapter 7 is not the end of the story. The Apostle Paul says that there is more to it. And now we move here into Romans chapter 8, and we see that there is more to the story. See, Romans chapter 7 is a Christian trying to cut down their two cords of wood without the power in the chainsaw, trying to live life according to their own strength and their own natural talents. And when that happens, we are certainly going to fail. But here in Romans chapter 8, we see introduced to us the power of the Christian life. Paul says it is the Holy Spirit. The word spirit, or in the Greek word is pneuma, it is used 19 times in the first 27 verses of Romans chapter 8. It is a spirit-filled chapter. It is the intent of Paul to teach us about the significance of the Holy Spirit, not just in his glory and his personhood, but of the work of the Holy Spirit within the life of everyone who believes. Now, I have to also stop for just a second and acknowledge for a fact that when 
in a Presbyterian church, you start moving onto a subject like the Holy Spirit, I recognize that some of you are about to get creeped out. We like things in order. We like things that we can control. And the Holy Spirit is neither of those. The Holy Spirit elsewhere in Scripture is likened like the wind. You never know where it's coming from. You never know where it's going. And it absolutely cannot be harnessed or controlled. The Holy Spirit is powerful. And so, therefore, at times in churches, in Reformed tradition, we admire the Holy Spirit. We are just uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. And so we try to keep him in his place. Now, what is his place? Well... Our church right now is violating that. That I was told in seminary, we as Presbyterians revere the Holy Spirit uh, so much that we reserve the first three pews for him. Um, and so nobody sits up front. I'm not sure what the Holy Spirit's place is. I just know that the Holy Spirit makes us uncomfortable. And then we have friends who come from other traditions where they talk about the Holy Spirit all the time. Everything is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guided you to that box and that sale in the grocery store of the, of, the, of the tea that you were going to buy. The Holy Spirit does everything to the point you've got to think, it seems rather trivial. And in some cases, I think it is. There are certain things that get, they give credit to that the Holy Spirit is probably not directly involved in. But that said, there are a lot of things that the Holy Spirit should get credit for that we, in our tradition, probably neglect to give to him. So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. As a person, he is not an it, which is often how we describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is often known as the shy member of the Trinity because he never points to himself. He is always pointing to the completed work of Jesus Christ. The most common work of the Spirit is to bring conviction, showing us what our lives really are like, and then pointing us to what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me, in order that we can repent and then experience the forgiveness that he works. Because Christ has secured it and paid that debt. The Holy Spirit is active and he is alive. He is the hope for us if we are going to experience success within our lives, within our Christian lives. And the Holy Spirit dwells within everyone who believes. I know that is a point of contention with some certain Christians and certain Christian traditions. But very quickly, I want to turn your attention to verses 9 and 10 and to make the point that the Apostle Paul is making. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, you know, he's talking about the people who walk in the flesh. And he says, you, he's writing to this whole Roman church, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Well, how does he know? I mean, he's writing to an entire church. If not every believer has the Holy Spirit, how can he say to an entire church that you have the Holy Spirit? He should have said, some of you have the Holy Spirit. Some of you one day will attain that second blessing of the Holy Spirit. But he's confident in saying, you, everyone who believes, and then he qualifies that in, in verse 9, uh, when he says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells within you. Now that sort of seems redundant. But he's saying, you have him if he dwells within you. But the, the key thing that we, we look at there is that he says that, um, that, that you, you have him. Now, 
can continue on and see what he says here. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ, does not belong to him. Now that's a pretty clear statement that anyone who belongs to Christ has the Holy Spirit. And the reason that I focus on that is because I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. No doubt there are some of you who grew up believing and being taught that the Holy Spirit is the second blessing that comes after conversion. Others of you may not have known anything. But I want to make sure that every one of you understands this, is that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who brought, made, made you alive, gave you the gift to believe that, and he took up residence within you at the moment that you believed. Everyone here who is trusting in Christ has the Holy Spirit, and if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ. How do you get Christ? By faith. How do you get faith? By the Holy Spirit. And, and so it's, it's circular, but it's vitally important. It's, it's foundation. And so if you're asking yourself, do I have the Spirit, then ask yourself a more basic question. What is my only hope in life and in death? If your answer is, my only hope in life and death is that I don't belong to myself, that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given his life to me, for me. Then according to the promises of the scriptures, and clearly here for the Apostle Paul, you also have the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who enables you to, to believe and to live according to that faith. Now, with that understood... We still have this question. How does it all work? Even if that man had taken his chainsaw home and knew that there was some sort of power but didn't know how to harness that power, to access that power, he would have still had a problem. Even if you and I know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, because he dwells within all who believe. It doesn't mean that we know how it all works. But in these verses, if we take a helicopter view, the Apostle Paul shows us how the Holy Spirit is at work within us to grant us the power to be able to live the lives that God calls us to live, that we desire to live. We see in these passages that the Holy Spirit works in us to look back, to look within, and to look forward. We look back and remember the past, and we see that here in the first verses of this passage. By looking back, it means that we, we remind ourselves what God has already done for us. And as Paul opens this chapter, he begins with these familiar words of praise, there is, uh, of thanksgiving. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word now is significant because it's not just in the end when we go before the Lord. We won't be condemned at that point. Paul is saying, there is now, therefore, therefore, is therefore, you know, that's what we say, but I hope you hear ad nauseum, 
so you can say it in your sleep. When you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask, why is the, what is the therefore therefore? Therefore points us back to things that he had said before. Not so much in chapter 7, except for the very last part of that, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God because of Jesus Christ. So some of that, but then it skips back to the power of the gospel that Paul had been speaking about before he was uh, making his kind of um, uh, parenthesis expression of the faith. But for everyone who's in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's important for you to understand. Because when we go through trials in this life, many people are prone to say, why is God punishing me? The scripture is very clear that if you belong to Christ, God is not punishing you. He may be disciplining you. Punishment is the sake of exercising wrath itself. Discipline is difficulty, hardship, for the purpose of shaping God is not bringing condemnation on anyone who belongs to him. If you are in the midst of a, a, a difficult season in life, it is not because God is angry and is punishing you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then Paul goes on and explains why. And he points us back to the gospel itself. The reason there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ is because God condemned Christ in our place. All of the wrath was poured out on him. He experienced the condemnation that we should receive. It has already been accomplished, and therefore to pour it out on those who belong to Christ, those who are in union with Christ by faith, would be double jeopardy. It would be unjust. It, therefore, is out of the very character and the nature of God. But in these passages, looking back is not just to the promise that was secured by Christ. Paul says that we look back and we see and are reminded of the gospel itself. And so Paul says this, beginning in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. In other words, the law of the spirit, in law being a principle, the way that the, the spirit works, has set you free from the law that condemns, the law that points out all of your failures. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So the gift of God is what he's about to describe. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, by sending Jesus who became like us. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now there's part of that is because we're in Christ who has fulfilled the law. And now we are in union with him by faith, and he has paid our penalty. He has redeemed us, paid the price that we owe. Now, because of him, we are credited with having fulfilled those rules simply by faith in our union with Christ. These are sometimes dizzying theological concepts, but they're not mere things. They are vitally important in understanding not just God forgives, but here's why and the heart and the depth of it. It's not just that God is merciful, but God is just, that he's already paid, he's already, the punishment's already been paid. And so therefore, to, to punish again would be contrary to God's nature. And God will not ever violate himself. And so what Paul is doing here is he's reminding us of the past, what God has already done. And he says the Spirit takes us to look back, and the Spirit constantly is bringing that truth to our minds that we would remember. 
And it's important because many Christians live in, in this, this vicious spin cycle. They fail. And so they feel all they can do is defend themselves or deflect or dismiss the seriousness of their, of their sin. Or they feel defeated. They feel and fear condemnation. And in order to not feel the condemnation, they deflect, and, and, and there's just this vicious spin, never embracing the reality of the failure, certainly not as clearly as the Apostle Paul does in, in Romans chapter 7, where the promise of the gospel and the work of the Spirit in pointing us to the past is saying the first thing that we ought to do when we feel spiritually, feel spiritually frustrated or spiritually stunted is to remind ourselves of what God has already done thank him for removing the condemnation because it has been paid in Christ Jesus. To own our failure, admit it before God, remembering the gospel, what we call around here, preach the gospel to yourself, which is what Paul was doing here. Remember what has already been done. Martin Luther, in one of his sermons, did a beautiful job of this because he was dealing with this issue of Christians who struggle with the reality of their failure and of their sin. And here's what Luther says. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. So what? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. See, Luther was simply doing what the Apostle Paul was doing here at the beginning. The Spirit of God dwelling and moving him to remember what has already been done. It is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of our life. And as a foundation, it is not something that we move on from, but it is something that we continually build and connect into. And the Spirit will constantly bring that to our minds so that we would give thanks to God and praise God and also have the hope and the security and the assurance to live, not only through our failures, but with the confidence that God, who is at work, will enable us to do what he wants us to do and what we want to do. As you look in this passage, we see part of what was being done here. Look in, in verse 4. The gospel, being rooted in the gospel, was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, there is a sense in which it's fulfilled because Christ fulfilled it and we're in union with him, but that's not all that there is. We are being forgiven and set free in order that we can actually live this law that, prior to faith in Christ, did nothing but condemn us and point out nothing but our failures. So the Holy Spirit not only takes us constantly to look back at what God has already done, the Holy Spirit also says, look within and engage the present. And then Paul goes into what becomes the most confusing part here, this constant contrast of the two natures. One is called the flesh. The, the Greek word is sarx, S-A-R-X. And the other is the spirit. The Greek word there is pneuma from which we get the word pneumonia, which is powerful, but something we don't want. So we leave that, uh, that, uh, that part, but just recognize it's, it's just it's breath. 
um, is, is how the Spirit is described from that word. And Paul is saying that the Spirit will reveal to us whether we are living according to the Spirit or whether we are living according to the flesh. And there, there's this battle. Now, we need to understand that with the flesh he's talking about here, the word sarks. John Stott says this, Sarks is neither the soft muscular tissue which covers our bony skeleton, in other words, the flesh that is used here, nor our bodily instincts and appetites, but rather the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed. In other words, when he's talking about flesh, it's not our skin. It's not what we refer to as flesh. It's not that your flesh, your skin, is somehow sinful, so therefore it must be punished. Or it, 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 That's not the answer. Nor is it merely the basic appetites of humanity that we get hungry or the things that we desire that are, are common for all of humanity. Sometimes it's described that way. But I think what Stott's comparison is saying, it's, it's viewing the totality of our humanness, not just physical flesh, but the totality of our, our humanness that has fallen and yet to be redeemed. In other words, it's the brokenness. It's the worldliness that is in us that is being described here. As another commentator more succinctly puts it, it is our sin-dominated, self-centered self is what he's talking about when he talks about the flesh, which is what all of us live by prior to our redemption and the Spirit taking up residence within us because we have nothing else. We are all self-centered by nature, by our fallen nature. We live for ourselves. Some do that out of greed, selfishness, and oppression. Others do it through kindness and generosity because they recognize that gets reciprocation and people like them and then they get more of what they want. But the natural instinct of humanity is to live for self. And so each phrase in here that's talking about the the flesh is speaking about those who operate from that perspective. Now, as Paul's talking about that, he said, you are no longer in the flesh. It doesn't mean that we have now somehow, somehow have removed ourselves from our bodies. Christianity doesn't deal with dualism as if the spirit is good and the body is bad. A lot of Christian teaching seems to suggest that, but that is not rooted and not found in the scriptures. And we'll see that evidence at the end here of this passage this morning. But he's saying that there is that fight, that tension that goes on, and we have all experienced it. And then he says what the Holy Spirit does is he brings in a new way of thinking. The Spirit brings in a new way of thinking and a new way of living. And so as the the Holy Spirit is at work within us, he brings a, the, the new mindset to our minds. Think differently. We think of spiritual things rather than just our own things. And by spiritual, he's not meaning what some would say is that, you know, the, one commentator said that the, the greater aspects of our being as being spiritual, which is what somebody means when say, I, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm, I'm not religious. 
In other words, they, they see and they experience the, the transcendent mysticism in, in art or in music or in nature and creation, and, and there's something glorious in every one of them, and, and they appreciate that, and so that sensitivity they consider to be spiritual. Well, the spirit here is not that, but it is the personal Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who has taken up residence. That's who Paul was talking about. So the person of the Holy Spirit is spiritual, and he's saying you are now spiritual if you are in Christ. You now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you if you are in Christ, and that Holy Spirit has a totally different way of thinking of things because the Holy Spirit's concern is that which brings God most glory. The Holy Spirit is considered is concerned with what enables you to grow most into the maturity of being like God. And being most like God, enable Holy Spirit leads you to be thinking of others before you think of yourself. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that's within us. And the, listen, the difference between thinking of others before yourself, the self-centered is so that I will be thought to be good. The Holy Spirit is saying we think of others so that we can be one and that God would ultimately be glorified. And so if you want to ask yourself, how do I know if I'm thinking of things of the Spirit? Ask yourself this question before you make any decision. What would bring God the most glory? What would bring God the most pleasure? And then when you wrestle through that and act toward that direction, that is a spirit-driven question rather than what do I want to do most? Does it break any of God's rules? doesn't seem to, then I can do whatever I want. That is the ego, the self-centered question. The Holy Spirit brings in a different way of thinking. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit, it's not so much a radical different way of thinking and total different questions, but we think differently about day-to-day things. For example, the question of wealth. Wealth is neither good nor evil. Wealth is just wealth that some people have and other people do not. The self says, I want wealth because it will bring me comfort. I want wealth because it will bring me power. I want wealth because it will bring me whatever it is that money can buy, status. God does not oppose wealth, but the Holy Spirit thinks of wealth and moves wealth in terms of generosity. Those of you who have tremendous gifts of making money are able to bless many, many people. And the Holy Spirit is not saying, therefore, it's wrong for people to have money and raise up some entity, whether it's the government or the church, it should take that off from you. But it gives you a different motive. You look at things differently and say, if I do this, then I can benefit these people. I can do whatever with that. It's a different mindset that the Holy Spirit brings in, even on some of the same issues. And the reason that he brings in the different mindset is we do what we think. And as he says here, it's for the purpose of enabling us to fulfill the law. And it's a fascinating thing to consider. It's the law that does nothing but condemn. The law that we think we got it only to come to a certain level to realize I don't have it. Or I've kept it, but now I broke it. And if you 
break the law at any point, you're guilty of violating the entirety of the law. It's not good enough that you keep the law 90% of the time. It's 100% or you fail. And that is an incredibly frustrating thing, which is why so many people reject that, that aspect of what God says. We have not really been able to keep it. And when we do keep it, it's usually so that we can feel good about ourselves or that we can justify ourselves prior to being in Christ. And he's saying, now with the Spirit, who is at work in you to enable you to do the requirements of the law. The reason people hate to see God's law the way that God intends it, the fullness of it, which is beyond your ability to keep, is because it's frustrating and because it's condemning, and therefore it's frightening. By the power of the Holy Spirit, even though we will fail at certain points, we are able to keep the law for the purpose of glorifying God. We keep the law at moments, and we get a taste of it. And so when you read the psalmists and others speaking of the law in these glorious terms and writing poems and sonnets and songs about the beauty of the law, it's because they have experienced something that they thought that was beyond them. But the grace of God. A friend of mine teaching on this passage he was, he shared it this way. He said, you know, he for years had watched the Tribal Channel and he had watched, uh, you know, subscribed to National Geographic and he would love seeing the, particularly the national parks. And he lives at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, but so he loves the Smoky Mountains, but he always wanted to go out west or some of these reserves that are in Africa and just see things that are glorious. A couple of years ago, he had the opportunity to go out west, and he was fishing in one of these rivers that he had seen with the mountains towering above, ice cap. And as he was fishing, he was looking around and realizing he'd been wanting to do this for a number of years. And also then hit him, this is what it feels like when I keep the law. Something that seemed beyond my ability, another world maybe, but now I'm getting a taste of it. And the law becomes beautiful because the Spirit enables us to keep it. Because it changes our mindset and we begin thinking spiritually, spiritual questions, and it's a process. Paul says, we not only look back in what God has already done, we not only look within and deal with the two natures. In verse 11, he says, we look ahead and we contemplate the future. And verse 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, in other words, the third person of the Trinity, God, who raised Jesus from the dead, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through whose spirit who dwells within you. The bad news is we're all dying. Some of us feel the pains crawling closer than others. Not just those who have serious diseases, but those of us who freak when you get up in the morning. Things don't work like they used to. We recognize that gravity is not your friend anymore. All of those are signs that this life is, is temporary. The promise here is not that one day you'll escape this mortal body. But by the power of the Spirit, the promise of God is that he will raise your body just as he raised Jesus' body. It's one of the reasons that we are certain that as Christians, it's not just about spirit against the body. 
but that God created you after his image and that all of you was created good. All of us is corrupt, but all of us was, every part of our being was created good. And God will raise you. See, death frightens us because we don't know what's coming. The promise here is that God who is aware, who had already proven his power and raised Jesus from the dead, which is our hope in life and eternity, will also raise your body to be with your spirit when that time comes. It's an invitation for us to contemplate the promises of the future, future grace we have yet to experience. Now to suggest that this is an exhaustive explanation of the work of the Holy Spirit would be foolish. To suggest that even squeezed out all the juice of what's in this passage would be an exaggeration. But to get an overview of the work of the Holy Spirit, looking at it from above the text as we have it here, we do see how the Spirit is at work, and we see ways in which we are to also engage with the Spirit in our lives. We will experience failures. The words of the Apostle Paul give, you know, are lyric for our lives at times. We will all say, I don't know, I don't understand myself, I don't do what I want to do, I, 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 and I do what I don't want to do. And we confess our failures and we feel frustration. But rather than being hopeless and even helpless, because the Spirit of God dwells within you, He has given you direction in this passage of what to do. Look back. Look within. Look ahead. See, one of the things that we get confused in the Christian life is this. I'm going to do a very brief theological lecture. Please don't go to sleep yet. Everything leading up to this passage has been dealing with the issue of justification. How we are made right with God. And it is God has made known a righteousness apart from the law in the person of Christ who died for us and who rose again. And as we trust in him, then we are justified at that point. It is the act of God's free grace. Justification happens in a moment. It is God who does every bit of it. Theologians refer to that as being monergistic, meaning only one entity is at work, and that is God. But what Paul is dealing with here, beginning in chapter 8, is what is known as sanctification, which is the process by which we grow more and more to be like Christ, dying to sin and growing in his righteousness. And in sanctification, unlike justification, we do participate. There are things that God calls us to do we avail ourselves of the power of the Spirit, in which case we are able to grow in His grace. And in many ways, this demonstrates the reason for the differences of maturity levels of Christians. Those who avail themselves and who partner, uh, avail themselves of God's grace, who partner in their sanctification grow significantly more than the people who just said, all right, I'm saved. 
really all I care about. I'll just kind of hang out until God takes me home to heaven. There may be some growth in the latter category of people, but it's not going to be as evident as the person who begins to think and ask, what is the mind of God? What is going to bring God the most pleasure? And then acknowledging their own brokenness, constantly going back, looking back, looking within, looking ahead, contemplating those things, they grow more in godliness. We have here the very beginnings of the instructions that the man who didn't know how to run a chainsaw was lacking. But rather than for the cutting of wood, it's for the living of life. And you, by the power of the Spirit, can recognize the past is forgiven. You are at work of God now. And you have hope that will not be taken away no matter how great your failures feel. And so when Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death, thanks be to God. That is your cry in mind as well. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these words. We pray that you would be at work within us to help us to not only understand these principles, but to live in the power of the grace that is ours in Christ. To you, our Lord, be all glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.